Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, uh, we're going to be looking into the world of dreams, which was a very murky place perhaps 10 years ago when we started the programme. And there was no real evidence for why we dream. But now with fMRI and some interesting experimental research, we're suddenly able to peer into people's minds while they're dreaming and see what they see. Fascinating research and extraordinary science about sleep and dreaming on the way. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, you can email us, science.newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at NewstalkScience. And we get to all of those comments at the end of the podcast. All right, uh, it's time to look back at the breaking stories from the world of science this week. We're joined by Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland and Dr. Susan Kelleher from DCU School of Chemistry. You're both very welcome. Our first story is about the dodo, which apparently is actually going to come back now. Because there was lots of talk about maybe, and but this is... Oh, <laughs> your yeah, face sorry, says I'm it make, all. I'm making a face to say maybe, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, no, I mean, so so this is this is the company Colossal Biosciences, who was formed, uh, which was formed a couple of years ago, with uh, you know great ambitions to bring back the woolly mammoth. Is this and, George Church's? Yes, yeah. it's George Church. Yeah, and and it, th- this week they announced that they were setting up a new division of Avian Genomics, and they got an extra 150 millions worth of investment, and their first project was going to be to bring back the dodo from extinction. Um, so lots of questions I think arise from that. I mean, why is the, the obvious one? But I mean, I guess iconically speaking, you know, the dodo is the iconic extinct species. Yeah, I mean, when you think of extinct dead animal. Dead as a dodo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what we think of. Um, but this is not going to be easy and, and it's by no means a done deal. So, I mean, we, we do have lots of species, specimens of dead dodos all around the place. They only became extinct a few hundred years ago, but we don't have a complete genome. So exactly the same issue oh. with the mammoth, where we have to recreate, we have to find the bits of the mammoth DNA that make them a mammoth and then sort of slice that into an Indian elephant genome. We're going, they're, they're going to have to do exactly the same thing here. Uh, and it's the Nicobar pigeon is the closest relative of the dodo. Um, so they're going to have to, using those bits of DNA from, from old specimens, they're going to have to work out what are the bits that make a dodo a dodo and try to splice those in to a Nicobar pigeon genome. I'm all for this. I, I, I'm, I mean, yeah, the, the ma- yeah, because the mammoth, I, I, I mean, the mammoth, you can't make a mammoth. That's ridiculous. And like, you know, elephants are precious enough for the, uh, you know, yeah. a few birds. I mean, there's definitely some Screw things, them. there's things that are going to be easier about this. You're right. Like the gestation of an elephant, like two years. I mean, that's a big commitment for an elephant to have to carry what might, let's face it, turn out to be who knows what. Who knows what. And an emotion, and the emotional symbol exactly. of a dead half mammoth is gross. And, and, but like a bird. But, but actually, I mean, we know how to clone mammals. Dolly the sheep was cloned, you know, decades ago now. And we can access a mam- mammalian cell at the right time. You can't actually access a fertilised bird egg at, at the time that we would need to to clone it. So, I mean, what proponents of this will say is, look, this is going to force us to develop all kinds of new technology. Um, how do we splice multiple parts of a genome at the same time? Because we're going to have to make lots of changes in the genome. How do we, you know, they're talking about creating artificial wombs in this company. And, and they're saying, look, this will help us to potentially protect species that are, you know, on the verge of extinction or in tiny numbers. Yeah. They're saying we're going to have to introduce these species. So they're saying the dodo would be reintroduced into Mauritius and actually that might help us to protect areas of the ecosystem in Mauritius that were evolved 
to have the dodo there. Right. And they've done that before. They've reintroduced a giant tur- a tortoise into parts of Mauritius and the ebony forests have come back because that species helps to fertilise, you know, spread the fertilised seeds of those trees. Huh. I mean, those who are against it are saying, look, you know, it's a really dangerous kind of thought hazard to think we can kind of break nature and then use science to put it back together again. Um, and also think about the effort and cost here you know, versus potentially looking after what we currently have. So, like, I think this this company is is always going to be the subject of a lot of debate. L- look, you're. I mean, obviously, the 150 million is going to save a lot of. It's it's a, it could be an arc for a lot of other species for sure. They're on the brink. That is a good argument. That that last mm. one is now put me back on the fence. But until then, <laughs> I was Team Dodo. Um, love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, should we be bringing back the Dodo? I mean, as uh, even just to be able to say we did it with one. And then just say, that's it, we're done. I don't know. It seems to me like the sort of, it's like, you know, why do we go to the moon? You know, because it's hard. And uh, why do we bring that, the dodo? Because it's hard. I don't know. What, what do you think? I think it would be a very inspirational scientific project. Our second story, Susan, uh, has to do with mummies. Yes. So as we know, the ancient Egyptians like to embalm their dead, yep. you know, for their own reasons. Um, and if you, if you think about this, this was 4000 BC. So this was a very, very, very long time ago that this was happening, which is really remarkable considering all that they learned about how to preserve bodies. So the preservation process, as the Egyptians saw it, was both a chemical and a ritual process. So they didn't just slap on preservatives to their to their dead. You know, this was a very long process. It took up to 70 days in some scenarios. Wow. You know, the, all the rituals that went with it and all the different things that needed to be protected outside, you know, all the organs inside, everything was embalmed and protected. Um, so work published this week in Nature, um, basically the, the researchers got the chance to look at the pots that they had used in these ceremonies and they analyse them internally inside these pots to look at the residues of the chemicals that were used. So this is the most comprehensive study of these types of embalming fluids that were were used. So um, they got access to 31 different ceramic vessels and they all came from this one embalming workshop, which obviously was very busy back in the day, probably a hub of of life out there in Egypt um, that did all this embalming. So the different pots had different ancient markings on them to tell the, the people who were doing the embalming what the different different oils were used for. So some were used for internal organs, some were used, as I said, for your skin, some for the face, etc. So they looked at all of these different um, pots and they analysed what was inside them. So their analysis um, revealed that five of the vessels contained the label called anatus, which um, basically it's one of these labels that they've seen before, but researchers previously thought that basically it was myrrh, you know, this, the, the the Christmas uh, embalming oil. The Christmas like chemical. Know. The Christmas chemical. So, um, <laughs> is that a thing? I mean, there's probably lots that make things smell nice at Christmas and that's one of them. Um, but actually, in this this part, there seemed to be a lot more than, you know, than there wasn't just myrrh. Basically, there was oil from cedar and juniper trees mixed with um, different animal fats. So, far more complex than they'd originally thought. Three vessels were labelled with what's called cephet. Um, also, just the label and previously understood all they knew about it was that it was oil-based, but now they've realised and analysed it to see that it was, again, a mix of animal fats and plant oils, and this time from the cypress tree. Um, and they also analysed 
like mummification bandages that were available in this area as well. And they found residues of heated beeswax, castor oil and pistachio resin. So these are very complex things, very complicated mixtures of chemicals. Hmm. Um, And while some of these substances were previously known to be used in mummification, some of them were also quite new. And this was a, you know, a big finding in the world of, you know, interesting, you know, uh, Egyptian history. So one substance in particular called um, Elmus resin could have only come from tropical parts of Africa or in Southeast Asia. So this is now leading people in this field to understand how far the Egyptians went physically trading in order to get the right things for the mummification processes that they were really interested in. So there's a lot, I suppose... It's a bit, it's very nuanced. It's very specific to this field. And I mean, the people in this field are amazed by this, or listeners may or may not be. But <laughs> I, I think it's very interesting to think about the 4000 BC people going very far afield to get the right things to do their embalming. No, and, and also like the, that we can now um, sort of go back in time and read the chemicals and understand what, what uh, ingredients they use. It reminds me of that story we ran about Roman concrete a few weeks ago, which is, you know, how they managed to get concrete that self healed. Crazy stuff. The the, the Egyptians um, didn't preserve the brain, though, did they? Because the brain was useless. No. They didn't. They thought there was. They thought the brain was for nothing. That we, the everything was kept in the heart. And I remember one of my first interviews on this program was with a guy called Mister Mummy, and he he said he found this tool and he didn't know what it was for, and they also didn't know how they got the brains out, uh, and he, he realized that it was a whisk. So they stick it up the nose and they whisk, and then it all comes Yikes. out the nose. They put them, and that's how you get a brain out. Um, so enjoy your breakfast, everyone. Our third story, Ruth, uh, has to do with um, this amazing shape-shifting metal. Uh, so people may have seen, if they um, on our Twitter page, you'll see a, a video of, of this in happening, which is sort of a, a Lego dissolving, a Lego man-shaped metal thing dissolving and then reappearing. What what is what's going what's on? What's going here? on? Yeah, now, this is some incredible material science from uh, researchers in Hong Kong and in the US, and they have created a, a sort of shape shifting robot. So, so it's not just a metal material; it, it is a robot, but it's a mixture between a hard robot and a soft robot. So, what they're trying to do is come up with a material that can have the best properties of both. Obviously, traditional robots are made of metal. They're stiff. They are rigid. And we've seen now soft robotics in, in recent years, but they tend to be flexible, but they're they're weak and their their movements are difficult to control. So they're trying to come up with this new material and it's called MPTM and that means magnetoactive solid liquid phase transitional metal. So what that means, it's a metal material. It's made of a metal called gallium. And gallium is really, it's like an same family as aluminium. It's kind of an inert metal, but it melts at about 30 degrees Celsius. Hmm. Um, And what they've embedded in the gallium is complex little um, magnetic particles and and they've made a composite material. So what happens is when they um, put external magnetic fields onto this metal material, they can control its shape and its movement and they can also heat it so that, as you said, it becomes liquid. And I mean, this video for anyone, I mean, it is so like that scene from Terminator 2, the movie, with the T-1000 robot when it's caught behind bars and then it melts, exudes out of the bars and then reforms, even the fact that there's like a little bit left behind that it has to suck back in again at the end. So you're right, they made, it's only one millimetre high. It looks like a little silver Lego man, as you said. When they apply that magnetic force, it essentially melts. It, you know, oozes out through a little cage that they built for it and then it reforms when they put the magnetic field onto it again. It's absolutely incredible. 
it, it is absolutely obviously it's very um, limited at the moment of the application of that sort of thing. But oh, you don't think so? No. Well, I mean, they've already put this this robot. I guess they've christened it MPTM through its paces. And it can do quite a lot of things already. Oh, right. Such as? So one thing they've had to do, they made an artificial stomach and they were able to put it into the stomach as a little sort of, you know, a little disc. And there's a foreign object embedded in the stomach. So it can get to the foreign object. It can become liquid, this artificial stomach. It can envelop the foreign object, become hard again and then be pulled by magnetic force out what? the other end of the stomach. It can deliver drugs technically into this artificial stomach. Um, it can also do things like solder circuits in circuit boards that are hard to get to. It can become a screw in a tight corner where you can't get a screw in because it can pour in to a screw hole and then solidify and become a screw. So oh my this God. material is amazing. <laughs> so uh, you'll see the video of the the, the sort of Lego figure um, melting and then uh, coming back again on our Twitter page. We're at News Talk Science. Absolutely amazing stuff. Thanks very much, Ruth. Uh, our final story, um, Susan, has to do with the love hormone. Yes, oxytocin. This is a really interesting use of CRISPR-Cas9. So um, prairie voles, I don't know if you know much about them, they're small sort of mouse-like creatures um, that are one of the few rodents that mate for life. So for this reason, they have been studied um, extensively because they are small and you can get access to them um, relatively easily and you can study their levels of uh, oxytocin and how they form their relationships. The relationships that they they form is called pair bonding between these small uh, creatures and um, um, pair-bonded prairie voles prefer each other's company over that of strangers and they huddle together both in the wild and in labs. So they're really quite adorable. Um, and as I said, researchers have studied these creatures and this attachment for years, um, and particularly the, the love hormone oxytocin. So what they've, people have done is that previous studies have blocked the oxytocin receptor in order to see um, whether or not the voles would still mate for life if the drugs that they use to block these um receptors um, basically stopped that signal from going through and they were still mad about each other. So that, that kind of gave like gave uh, an idea into the, into the researcher's head that said maybe there's more to it than just blocking the receptors. So a team from California who published this work this week in Neuron, the, the journal, looked at using CRISPR-Cas9 to switch off the gene responsible for producing the oxytocin receptor in the brain um, of these voles and they studied whether or not these voles still mated for life and this was done at the embryonic level so um, it meant that they'd never been exposed to oxytocin before and they still did mate for life so even without oxytocin present at all these voles still pair bonded in the lab I am so glad you said that because I was going to be very sad for those few prairie voles that (laughs) were created incapable of love oh no no and that's what they say the the researchers say like this what's really reassuring is is that if we're the idea is to mate for life, right? And it's it's better for the the mankind or better for volkind that that they do this. That there's more than one pathway to do this. We're not reliant on oxytocin, you know. That then maybe this is I don't know destiny. I'm doing inverted commas here, but that there's more than one pathway involved, and and um, that the fact that these yes these voles still get to mate for life and be there together, but um, that perhaps it's just as well. There's more than one way to fall in love. Oh, that's a nice um. way to end it, actually. <laughs> um, Dr. Susan Kelleher from uh, DCU School of Chemical Sciences and Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Thank you very much. Now, sleep science is a fascinating area of research for me. And 
even just the fact that 12% of people dream in black and white, like how do they know that? It's such a, an amazing area. And because everybody dreams and is fascinated by their dreams, we thought we'd talk about it. Uh, so joining me to delve into the world of dreams is Robert Stigold. He's a professor of psychiatry at the Centre for Sleep and Cognition in Harvard Medical School. Uh, welcome to the programme, Robert. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I have to say, we touch on this every once in a while in the program, and it's just such a fascinating area for me because it seems like we still don't really know a lot about why we sleep, why we dream, or what's going on, what the purpose is uh, for, for dreaming. Uh, how, how has that changed over the last five, ten years, do you think? I think we have really come to understand hopefully correctly, um, why we dream and what the function of that dreaming is. Um, a colleague of mine, Tony Zadra, and I recently had a book out called When Brains Dream that describes this new model, which we call Next Up, which stands for Next Network Exploration to Understand Possibilities. And the idea is that the reason we dream is so that our brain can take uh, newly discovered discovered by itself, um, associations that we have between recent events and older memories, and see if it makes sense to hook those together and, and sort of form them as a strong pair so that when I think about this problem I was worrying about yesterday, I will remember this older memory that my brain has calculated um, might be useful. And the way it calculates it is it creates a story about it. It creates a narrative, which is the dream. Uh, the creating of narratives, of stories, is, is how the human brain um, tries to understand possibilities about the future and even to solve problems it has. If we're trying to figure something out, we talk our way through it. We imagine it. We try to see how one outcome or another um, might occur. And so dreaming is just another way that our brain has for exploring what we call the possibility space, the, the realm of all the possible ways that you can solve a problem. So, so that to me sounds really feasible, but it also sounds extremely difficult to prove. How on earth can you know that when, when we dream we are not conscious? I wish I knew how to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can bite around the edges. A colleague of mine, Erin Wamsley, has done a study, for example, where she collects dream reports from individuals and asks them, is this dream about something that was in the past or about something in the future? And it turns out that somewhere between a third and a half of all dreams, dreamers say, well, it's about something that's coming up in the future. It's not about something in the past. And that's interesting because Dan Schachter here at Harvard, um, who's a psychologist and a memory researcher, has pushed this concept that memory isn't about the past, it's about the future. That the reason we have evolved to have memories is so that we can use them to better predict um, how we should act in the future, of what will happen next time this situation arises. And so... But, but, but I just to pause yeah. there for a second oh. because self-reporting of that... Um, obviously is, is slightly problematic because when I think of the dream yes, I had last yes. night in which one of my legs was a crocodile, I'm just wondering how that has anything to do with the future or the past. Um, uh, you, you know, like, you, you know, we don't remember all of our dreams. Sometimes we don't remember them at all. When, when you ask someone to self-report about their dreams, I'm surely they only give you a very patchy 
recall of what happened unless they're um, right. unless they're lucid dreaming. Surely they don't. They have no idea what they actually dreamt about. They only have sort of fragments of of, of what they dreamt. That's absolutely true. But it's equally true about waking memories. If you ask people um, to describe a movie that you've just shown them, um, they give very patchy reports, even if it's just a two-minute movie. Hmm. If you show them a picture of a car accident where a car uh, hits a truck, and when you see it, you see, there is, in fact, no dent in the truck, but you assume that they hit. And if you ask the people afterwards, did you see a dent in the truck? Most of them say no. But if you ask them, did you see the dent in the truck? Most of them say yes. Huh. So we're, we're sort of doing the best we can, even in recalling memories from two minutes ago, from five minutes ago. So, so yes, the dream reports are even worse. And all we can do is hope that by looking at enough of them. So, for example, I happen to have great confidence that we could collect waking memory reports from 100,000 people, and not one of them would say that they remember that their leg was a crocodile leg. Why? Am so I, am I, I weird? Say, well, if, if that was a waking report, I would suggest say. Oh, right, I see. Sorry, yeah. Okay. You. <laughs> Sorry. You're but talking about, I thought you meant after they woke up. You mean uh, when no, they no, are no, awake. No, okay, no. right, okay, I'd yeah. Okay. When they're awake, right? I was and worried so I there. can look at your dream report and say, okay, something very different is happening. <laughs> while he was, while Jonathan was asleep, yeah. that happens when you're awake. And maybe you, in fact, didn't have an alligator or crocodile leg in the dream. But when you woke up, that's that's the memory you have of it. And that's the, the best, that's the best evidence we can have. And that's not unusual. If you talk to any psychologist or psychiatrist, they work entirely off of like people remember. Yeah. My wife, she's a trauma therapist and people remember things from their childhood and they say, but I'm not, I'm not sure that really happened. And all she can say is, we'll never know if that really happened, but that is your memory of it. That is your story about it. And that's what we work with. But, 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 but why, why work with that? That to me was, is like, oh, I don't know. It seems like you're trying to, you know, paint uh, you know, the Mona Lisa with a, with a rock dipped in mud. Like, I, I, it seems like I would never be, I'd never be satisfied working in that arena. Can we not, you know, just throw all the people under machines uh, in fMRI? Aren't we, aren't we, isn't MRI giving us, you know, and, and deep brain um, probes, aren't they telling us what people are thinking about? Can we not just probe people's brains all day? <laughs> I mean, we, is that not we better? Are, yeah. <laughs> That might eventually be better. At the moment, the best that we've done is a group in, in Japan that has done functional MRI scanning while someone slept. After having them look at a thousand pictures while they were awake, so they know how their brain image looks when the person's actually looking at a picture of a child or a woman or a house or a car, and then take the fMRI imagery from a, a dream, or more specifically, from when a person was asleep shortly before you wake them up, and say, okay, the best fit to this brain image is it looks like um, a woman maybe and a child. And then you ask them, okay, what were you dreaming? And in, in, in cases that are reported in papers they have published, the person saying, well, there was there was uh, a couple of kids and one of their parents. Wow. Are you, say, are you for real? Okay. Like, was, I mean, that, that sounds incredible. That, 
so that so that, so so let's let me just walk that back. You're saying yep. that um, people were shown uh, a bunch of images to train, I, I guess, to train what a what a cat might look like on, on, in brain activity, and then they were able to reverse engineer looking at dream activity and say, "Looks like you were dreaming about cats." Yeah. Wow. In fact, it's even it's even better. It's even. I mean, they can do it much better if it's during waking. So after you've had them look at these thousand pictures and the computer using these deep thought techniques has has sorted out what each class of picture looks like, you can then show them another dozen or 50 pictures and record their brain images. And with you not knowing what they saw, you can ask the computer, okay, what were they looking at? And they're pretty good at it now. No. So, so, that, so that's so like yes, why not use yeah. that tool than asking people what did you dream about and then trying to figure it out like looking at tea leaves in a cup. Well, because if we did that with your dream, we might have gotten if we were lucky. Um, okay, um, there was an arm or a leg and a large animal. Yeah. So I, we're not there. We're not there yet. Give, give us another thirty yeah. <laughs> years. <laughs> Hurry up! No. Um, so so. Let's let's stick that there for a second because it's fascinating. But I do want to get to, the, to, to this idea of our brain, you know, uh, incorporating new memories from the day and that being the function of dreams. Why do we think that's the case? I do remember reading uh, something about a study where people were given a a series of uh, movements to learn, and then they went to sleep, and then in their brain you could see their body doing those sort of movements, which which to me would would lend itself to that theory. What makes you think that we are incorporating new, new uh, memories? Like, I suppose if you let someone not sleep, do they have much poorer memory of things that happened that day, or what's the evidence? Well, that's exactly true. In fact, I've got I've got twenty five years of, of papers that just look at the question not about dreaming per se, but about sleep, that show that a night of sleep leads to massive transformations of your memories. Um, it takes, if you learn how to do some skill, like typing, or my son riding a bicycle, and you let them sleep on it, they are actually better at it the next morning. And in fact, if instead you train them in the morning and test them in the evening when they've been awake all day, they're not better. Yeah. So you can do that for learning skills, you can do that for learning words, you can learn that for figuring out complicated patterns when we show them all sorts of pictures and ask them to predict what the next picture is going to be. And they kind of get good at it, but they don't know what the rules are. They'll be better at it after a night of sleep. And that might depend on how much REM sleep they got, rapid eye movement sleep, when we do our most intense dreaming. If it's a learning about some complex system, that's the sleep stage that's most important. If they're trying to memorize word pairs, then deep non-REM sleep is what correlates with how much better they get over a night. Okay. And Erin so- Walmsley, Erin Walmsley, a former student of mine, also did the study where she woke them up and found that, in fact, it's the people who, uh, especially in the first few minutes of sleep, uh, who report that they were dreaming about the task, those are the ones who show the biggest improvement overnight. Wow. Okay, so, so that does really lend itself to um, to good sort of elegant experiments that, that makes us think they form those memories. Why are the dreams so visual, vivid, and wacky, though? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering an interview we did with a memory expert a number of years ago 
who said that when they want to remember the order of a long list of things, they, they take a walk through their house in their mind and they put, you know, on the table, they'll put, if you need to remember, you know, the, the animals in a zoo in order, right. they'd say like on the front door, they'd have, you know, the door knocker is a lion. And then they would put, you know, a rhino, a little mini rhino on the, on the kitchen, on the, the whole table. And then one of the paintings would be of a cat and that helps them much better visualize all of, the, all of this information. Is there something key to the visualization part that helps us make these memories stick? Is there any evidence to that? Well, we are a very visual organism. Something close to a quarter of our brain is involved in processing visual information. And when we create stories, when we create narratives, we see them, right? I mean, what do I say? I say, okay, picture this. I don't say, taste this. I don't say, hear this. I say, picture this. And even if what I'm asking you to picture is how to solve a math problem, which is not inherently visual, that's the way, that's the way our brains as humans, a visual animal, that's how we do most of this. So, so that's probably why it's so visual. Um, I would guess that if we were talking about uh, rodents and they, if they in fact did dream, they would probably do it more in smell. And we know that people who are blind Wow. especially if they've been blind since birth, don't dream visually, but they have much more intense um, tactile and auditory content in their dreams than you and I do. What? So it's whatever is the main, yeah. I mean, how do you ask a, a blind person whether or not they dream visually? Like, how, uh, how can they describe something yes. when, they, when they don't have so, so experience of, ask, of, of making something visual? An excellent, an excellent question. The answer is that we take people who lost their vision um, later in life. So someone who um, went blind when they were five years old or developed cataracts and, and went blind uh, in adulthood. And what happens then is over a period of a few years, they lose visual content. Um, it's not that they can't still imagine things when they're awake as visual images. It's that they don't dream them anymore because their brain has calculated that visual images aren't going to be useful to them in the future. So, so uh, this is amazing to me. So how do we know that from, from looking at the visual cortex and looking at activity that's, that declines over time? Or how do, we, how do you know that? Mostly, mostly it's done by just asking them. You ask them, so since, since you lost your vision, um, do you still have visual imagery in your dreams? And for several years, the answer is yes. And it becomes very poignant because it is the only time that they can see family members is in their dreams because they're now actually blind when they're awake. But over over five years, they start saying, I, no, no, you know, it becomes very sketchy, the imagery, and, and then it just stops altogether. So it might very well. This is, so you ask, you know, do they do brain imaging? That wouldn't work because it turns out that if you take a blind person, someone who's congenitally blind, and teach them how to read Braille, their brain uses their visual cortex to read Braille. Huh. And in fact, uh, Alvaro Pascaglione also at Harvard ran these studies with just college students where he blindfolded them for a week and taught them Braille. And their brains also not rewired, but functionally rewired. So their visual cortex would light up when they were reading Braille. And if he used 
um, techniques to inhibit the activity in the visual cortex, then they couldn't read the Braille anymore. So it not only was correlated with it, but it was causal. If you blocked <laughs> visual cortex, they couldn't read Braille. These are things that we're learning about the brain that just don't fit any of our old models. Wow. That is so fascinating. If you're listening and you are someone who's lost your sight in later life or lives with someone, I'd love to hear your experiences of that. Does that ring true to you? And, and, and what is that like? You can email us science at newstalk.com. Um, wow, I have to say I've learned a lot from, from this, uh, Robert. You asked it in a, in a combined question because you asked why are our dreams so visual and why are they so strange? And the concept behind the strangeness is that when we're sleeping, and the chemistry of our brain is altered. In REM sleep, for example, noradrenaline release shuts off, serotonin releases shut off in the brain, and it results in the brain being able to access more distant and more weakly related memories. So it's sort of as if when you're sleeping, your brain is saying, okay, how am I gonna deal with the fact that there is a train strike scheduled for the day I'm supposed to be going up to Scotland, and I was planning to take the train. And of course, if you're thinking about this when you're awake, you'll go through a series of almost predictable alternatives. But then when you're sleeping and still worrying about this and your brain has access to more distant associations, it might come up with something that I can't even imagine um, because that's what dreaming is good for. It's good for finding those possibilities, right? network exploration to understand possibilities. It could come up with something like, wait a minute, isn't there, isn't there a traveling circus that's driving up <laughs> to Scotland exactly? I wonder if I could, I know someone in that circus, you know, I could maybe bum a ride with them. And so what do you do? You dream about having an alligator leg. I don't know, right? But something that tries to pull those memories together and look at them to see if they look useful. I, I I think it's an absolutely fascinating a theory. I'd love to I'd love to be able to peer into people's minds and see what they're dreaming and figure out why. Um, and it, it seems like we're slowly getting there, but there's still so much to to be answered. A fascinating uh, interview. Thank you so much, Professor of Psychiatry at the Center for Sleep and Cognition, uh, Robert Stickle. Thanks, Robert. You're welcome. You know, I used to do a talk show on Spain 103.8 and I loved it because we'd have like just rubbish, nonsense, fun conversations all the time. It was not that serious at all. And um, one of the things regularly we talked about was dreams. People are fascinated by their own dreams. You, you could just turn on the phone lines and you'd be flooded with people who want to tell you about the mad dreams they had and what does it mean. And we, ha I remember we used to have like a dream interpreter and like she, ha she had no idea what she was doing. She was making everything up. Like there was no scientific rigor to it whatsoever. And I'm ashamed to say I loved it. I, we, we ran with it even though I knew it was, it was BS. Uh, but it, it, it's a fascinating subject. And you like, why do you have these dreams? Like, uh, why do we dream the, the dreams? We do? Why do people have recurring dreams? Uh, I, th I think if, we, if we're starting to get to a phase where we can look at someone's brain while they're sleeping and have an idea of what they're seeing, like almost, you know, sitting on their, sitting beside them in a movie theater, watching their dream play out, like that's so exciting. Um, although I know we're not quite there, but, uh, but very exciting. Um, it's time now to look back at some of your comments from last week. And Hugh says, 
I don't recall you discussing aphantasia on the show. If you have already, forgive me. But I think it might be an interesting subject for you. I'm 57 years old and have only this week discovered that I have this condition, in inverted commas. Indeed, I wasn't aware that aphantasia was a thing. That in itself blows my mind. Basically, aphantasia is an inability to conjure up an image in one's uh, mind. So um, if you were trying to conceptualize a memory or something like that, they remembered from seeing in real life, rather than be able to manifest an actual image of it, um, 3% of people are like me. They just can't do it. The brain is wonderfully strange. I'm, I'm, I find that description of aphantasia, and you've described it really well, Hugh, I find that really unclear to me as to what I'm supposed to be imagining in my mind's eye. Because if I were to say, if I were to try and imagine a, a cookie with um, Smarties on it, I, 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 I sort of can. I mean, I, it's not crystal clear. I'm not brilliant at it. But I, I wonder, can other, can other people just conjure up it in like 3D detail um, in bright color in their mind? I don't know. It's because it's all self-reported. It's a difficult thing to do, but I think we did talk about aphantasia a while. Is it something that you um, that resonates with you? You can email us in science@newstalk.com. Um, what about you, Maurice? Can you can you conjure up like if I said to you like a clown, you'd be able to in your close your eyes and imagine a clown? Yeah, I think I can. I don't know. It's like you know, I maybe I'm one of the three percent. Well, I mean, like it's like you know what what is read to you, what is read to me. Like I, I don't know what you see, but I, I'd love to be able to compare. Um, but if you think you might have a fantasia in, in that you cannot conjure up an image of something in your mind, let us know. Uh, you can email us science@newstalk.com. That's it for this week's podcast. Thanks to Marisa Sullivan, um, uh, our producer Simon Keane, Steve Daunt, Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.